0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at that's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: And welcome, everybody, to the Pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. That, by the way, that band you hear, that's right, that's the Pod's Honest Truth. Introband, that's what I like to call them. Not contraband, no, no, introband. And uh, I'm not sure if they're union or non union, but clearly uh, doing a great job. If they are union, we're going to have to get them some money, but that's an internal bookkeeping issue here at the Pods Honest Truth. We will work uh, on that. Hey, today we're going to take a break from the coronavirus on this podcast. We've been doing it every podcast. Uh, Today we want to talk politics, evangelicals, and Trump. And who better to talk about that? Then Ralph Reed, the CEO of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, he's out with a new book called For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. That's right, I said it, The Christian Case for Trump. I know, we just lost liberals, they're on the floor, let's get some smelling salts. We also lost the evangelicals for Trump, uh, or excuse me, the evangelicals that are never Trumpers, uh, they need smelling salts as well to revive them when I said The Christian Case for Trump. But the truth is, Evangelicals love him Or as Donald Trump would say The evangelicals, they love me and I love them And so that's what we're going to talk about on the Pod's Honest Truth today And by the way, on a quick separate note That has nothing to do with evangelicals or coronavirus I'm on the South Beach diet Can I just say this? I feel like I'm in a therapy session Um, And you got to be under 50 net carbs a day Now, look, you say, okay, whatever, no big deal Uh, Yeah, go try that, by the way Go try to go under 50 net carbs a day. I'm like Mr. Keto right now, okay? I've lost 15 pounds, thank you very much, I appreciate it. Though I am a bit angry pretty much all day long, uh, basically because uh, I'm under net carbs 50, right? I have 50 net carbs and, and that's that's an issue for me. So try doing that uh, all day long, but um, I'm kinda looking svelte, uh, looking better on the air, don't have that kinda bloated look. Uh, I do want cereal, bread, and Taco Bell all day for sure. Uh, and by the way, on a quick, I guess this would be coronavirus related, but Taco Bell, got to be essential personnel. Got to be. If I were governor, uh, they would f- clearly fit into that category. All right, back to evangelicals and Trump. I'm all over the place. I'm like a human etch sketch I'm like Donald Trump. Uh, that's what I call Donald Trump, the human etch sketch You never know, quite know where uh, he's going. When it comes to evangelicals and Trump, I like to use this line that was actually said by James Robeson. Uh, a pastor out there in America, and I love the way he says this, and I use it a lot. He says this, God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. And boy, is that true more than ever with Donald Trump. All caps, bold, especially the word imperfect. It's exactly what's going on here with Trump. And look, the Bible's replete with examples uh, of, uh, nasty kind of bad people, immoral people, but God took them and used them for good. And I mean, look, can you imagine CNN today with King David? Imagine if King David was around today, all right? You know, we had the adultery thing about Bathsheba. I could just see it now, a split sh- screen with Bathsheba and David and, uh, and a lower third saying, you know, the adulterous King David, right? Uh, They would have a field day with him on that, with murder. Look, David must have broken, what, six, seven of the commandments. I don't know. He's he's up there uh, for sure. Uh, But yet God used him mightily. So look, this is nothing new to evangelicals. They understand that this is how God operates. Now, before we get to Ralph Reed and we're going to get to him in our second segment, I do want to play a clip from the Morning Joe show. We know about it. Morning Joe. Uh, Joe Scarborough, who I've known for now, goodness gracious, now more than 10 years or so. And, you know, Joe and I are friends. It got a little testy at one point uh, during the campaign and maybe a little bit after because he couldn't quite understand uh, why I I was out there on television basically saying, here's why evangelicals uh, like Donald Trump. He just couldn't get his mind around it. So, we went ahead and had this conversation. Now, the conversation I'm about to play for you happened when I came out with a, a book that I wrote along with Scott Lamb called The Faith of Donald J. Trump. And as you might imagine, that drove liberals bonkers uh, and it drove Joe Scarborough a bit bonkers. And so when I appeared on Morning Joe to discuss the book and make the the case, if you will, not necessarily about Uh, how Donald Trump is this wonderful Christian, but to explain a little bit of the backstory on the faith of Donald Trump, he just uh, pretty much couldn't handle it. So I want you to listen to this uh, audio. This is the interview between me and Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe. This happened, uh, would be in 2018. uh, And uh, this kind of gives you a sense of a little bit of the thinking behind what Donald Trump is all about when it comes to evangelicals and why they support him. So have a listen. What is the faith of Donald Trump, David? Well, I asked him that specifically. We had an interview in the Oval Office for this book. He says he is a believer. Uh, Mike Pence, two interviews with him. Uh, very strong talking about how this president is a believer, and absolutely 100%. Uh, Paula White, his spiritual advisor, you know all about Paula White. Uh, she said she has had in-depth conversations with this president, very, very in-depth conversations, and saying, I can tell you 100%, that's a quote, 100%, he is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So but, from a journalistic perspective, we go think, ahead and though?
2: do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But what do well, you say, Donald, what has Donald well, Trump told you? Because, right. of course, you know, uh, certainly because of of what you've done and certainly what I have heard growing up in Southern Baptist churches for four decades, Mm -hmm. the center of any faith is understanding that you are a broken person, Mm -hmm. that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And we all must ask for God's forgiveness for our continued sins. Donald Trump has said, I never ask God for forgiveness. If I do something wrong, I try to leave him out of it. He's never asked for God's forgiveness. That doesn't pass the sniff test in any evangelical
1: church, does it? Well, Joe, let's let's be clear. He did say that in public uh, one time in Iowa to Frank Luntz. Now, behind the scenes, which is what this book is all about, paints a different story regarding Donald Trump. W- can I, can has, I just finish told the point? David, But I
2: didn't even this, get to my point. But, but David, you say he's saying it behind closed doors. That's what we're hearing about mm-hmm. uh, regarding the latest thing. Why, does it, why is it hard mm-hmm. for Donald Trump to say, I am a sinner, mm-hmm. I have fallen short of God's glory, and I depend on yeah. God's forgiveness well, for me to move forward.
1: Okay, so I'd like to get back to my other point, but that's okay. I'll go to this point. Sure, we'll do whatever you like. Uh, look, he's well a- no, no, David. I don't want to hear about what he whispers in closets. Answer. Yeah, but yeah,
2: because you're not right. answering. Why I'm can't, can't he say? You're this not publicly? giving me a
1: chance to answer, Joe. Let me answer, has, and has then he, maybe David, we has can have ever, a conversation. Has he ever said it publicly, David? Uh, he has talked about God in public, absolutely. And I will also say, as a mainline presbyterian his faith he doesn't wear it uh, on his sleeve like many other let's say the pentecostals uh, out there now having said that in the book what i definitely appoint uh, to here joe is this idea that he's been around a lot of folks that have uh, this jesus plus nothing biblical uh, mentality which is what the bible Uh, commands and he is going ahead and hearing all of that and I'm telling you there is a different story behind what you're seeing out there in public. He's been on a spiritual voyage especially these last five years and as a matter of fact he told me I have come into people I've contacted or I've been in contact with people that have impacted (coughs) me greatly and so remember Walter Cronkite was the one that said in seeking truth you have to get both sides of the story. Well we've heard one side of the story the other side is inside this book and I'm telling you there are stories to be POLL THAT SHOW A MUCH DIFFERENT SIDE OF DONALD TRUMP than A LOT OF FOLKS MIGHT EXPECT.
2: Well, you talk about a spiritual voyage. Mm-hmm. Um, just look at his Twitter feed and tell me, where has that spiritual voyage taken him over the past five years?
1: What are we missing? Well, once again, I, I think we're kind of missing it. Uh, we're kind of like doing this here a little bit because you're talking about in public. But let's be honest, what's said about you or others or me in public can be a much different than what we really are about. So my point simply is is that there are stories. For example, there's a time with James Robeson, a televangelist, uh, where he's very close to him. It was a tarmac and. Pensacola, actually, Pensacola, Florida. During the campaign trail, they're praying inside this SUV right there on the tarmac. Outside, afterwards, he gets out, hugs James Robison, and says, "I love you. I love you so much." I mean, th- literally, this is the words coming he out of said, Donald he Trump's says mouth. that to Don yeah. King. Well, I mean, he you says You know, that you're going to put everybody. it out of contact. That's fine. You can take it <laughs> no, anywhere you putting want. putting it out of context. Contact. That's what Donald Trump does. That's fine, I get- but, but so- Joe, you weren't there for the for the what what I am being told is a tender moment. Uh, that Donald Trump had uh, as it relates to this conversation with James Robeson.
2: Well, okay, so this it's going to be my last pass at this. And then answered. I'm going pa- to pass it around to everybody else because you're not stupid. Thank you're not you. dumb. You have grown up. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly mm-hmm. what you're doing. You're dissembling because you know that there is no... You you talk about me. Mm -hmm. I say all the time, Mm -hmm. I'm broken. I screw up every day. Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible person. If if I go to church, I go to church begging God for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because that is the center of the Christian faith. All I am asking you is, Mm -hmm. has Donald Trump Mm -hmm. once said publicly that he has... Send fallen short of the glory of God and yes. ask for God's yes. forgiveness. Yes,
1: you can Google it. I actually interviewed him on his golf course in California. Go ahead and Google it. He says, yes, I do ask God for forgiveness. Everybody talks about the Frank Luntz comment, but I asked him a month later so and he, he talked to me about So he said it privately to you and yes, that's the
0: public statement that you're talking about?
1: Well, I'm, first of all, you just asked me a question. I'm telling you that that's what he said to me. I'm just I'm just relaying privately. it as the facts. But, but I also want to say, okay. let's remember, the book is called The Faith of Donald Trump. It's not called The Sainthood of Donald Trump. Okay. And also I would say that this is not the Lamb's Book of Life, okay? Ultimately, God is going to judge Donald Trump. He's going to judge me, and he's going to judge everybody on the Morning uh, Joe set. He's going to judge everybody in this world. So the bottom line is, that's who he has to play to, not me, not you, or anybody else.
2: Well, so, so my final question mm-hmm. is this question. Why do you believe uh, that a guy like Donald Trump, who, um, let's just say, has an unorthodox view, Mm-hmm. of spirituality uh, based on the evangelicals that I've grown up with my entire life why do have evangelicals flocked to Donald Trump in record numbers
1: so many different reasons, Joe. I mean, it's spiritual. They believe he's been put there for a reason. Uh, they believe he's a culture warrior. Uh, they also have practical reasons. I mean, look, if you're going to talk about moral, you know, a lot of folks say, how in the world could you vote for Donald Trump uh, because of everything that he's done? Well, here's what Christians realize. And Joe, you know this, that men are fallible. In other words, men are sinners, women are sinners, we're all sinners. And so the bottom line is you can't put your faith necessarily in in a candidate, but you can do the moral thing by going to the macro. And that's what they've done. Judges, the life issue. Donald Trump has represented all of this during the campaign. And so evangelicals said, you know what? He may be, uh, he he may have a few issues, but the bottom line (laughs) is, is that in the macro, it's the moral right decision for them. That's the conclusion they came to. All right. So there was some of my discussion with Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe when it came to the faith of Donald Trump and evangelicals and Trump. And, you know, Joe just couldn't quite get there. Uh, I know he's frustrated. Look, uh, he grew up as Southern Baptist, and it's all about forgiveness. And I tried to kind of explain it like a vote. We had to get him a sedative after. No, he, I don't think we gave him a sedative. But the bottom line is uh, he, he was a bit uh, frustrated. Uh, after that interview. But, um, you know, look, we lo- we love him. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do? All right. When we come back, uh, Ralph Reed, For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. It's his new book. He'll talk about it next on The Pod's Honest Truth. <laughs> And welcome back to The Pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. All right, time now for our interview with Ralph Reed, the CEO of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. And he's out with the new book, as we've mentioned. It's called For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. And can I just say, look, when you see uh, online or if you uh, watch television or you read a newspaper And you hear these words, influential evangelical leaders. Well, look, when it comes to Ralph Reed, it should be all bold and caps because there are certain influential evangelical leaders that may not be as influential as you think. That's not the case with Ralph Reed. He's been around a long time. Sorry, yes, I said it. I'm not going to say how many years because I don't think Ralph would want me to say that. But let's just say, Reagan, Bush, Christian coalition. He goes back a while and he has seen everything when it comes to politics. And he's put it in this all in this book about Donald Trump and why evangelicals support this president. And it is an unabashed defense, not necessarily of Donald Trump, but specifically why evangelicals should support this president. Here's my conversation with Ralph Reed. Ralph Reed, great to see you again, sir. Uh, thanks for being here on the Pod's Honest
0: Truth. You bet, David. Good to be with you.
1: All right. For God and Country, the Christian case for, uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, ex- explain this exactly, and you lay it out really, to a degree, kind of like a legal case. I mean, you've got all the evidence uh, in the book, and boy, Christians have really taken one on the chin for this. So uh, tell me about why you wanted to write the book, and, and, and tell me more about how this all kind of came to
0: be. Well, you know, David, as you know, I uh, I don't go quite back to the creation of what some have called the religious right, but I've been involved for you know pushing four decades, mm-hmm. and uh, was at the Christian Coalition and then founded Faith and Freedom, and I've been helping to mobilize conservative people of faith for really my entire adult life and before that, and I wrote this book. Uh, not primarily as a defense of Donald Trump, although I do plenty of that, as you know. Mm -hmm. And I defend him against the lies and the fake news and the smears against his character. Uh, He's a friend, and I I have great affection for him. But that's not really the reason why I wrote the book. I wrote the book as a defense of tens of millions of God-fearing, patriotic Americans (laughs) who profess faith in Jesus Christ. They love God. Uh, they love Jesus, and they love their country. And they've been called every name in the book, including morally and spiritually bankrupt. Mm -hmm. They've been accused of cheapening the gospel. They've They've been accused of trading their faith in Christ for 30 pieces of silver in order to gain access to power. They've been insulted and smeared and demeaned for four and a half years for supporting this man and his policies. And I just felt they needed to be defended. And I felt it was also important, David, to tell the story of how they ended up coming to Trump. And contrary to the media myth and stereotype, it was not some bums rush to the altar. It was very reluctant. They had a lot of reservations. Trump had to do a lot of persuading. And Hillary Clinton played a pretty important role, I might add. So this story has never really been fully told until now. Now, I can't tell the whole story. I can only tell what I lived. Uh, but I got to know Donald Trump in the 2010-2011 period. I became friends with him. Uh, I got a chance to have a lot of conversations with him about issues. Uh, and, and I tell all that too. So I, I think it will be a real uh, tool for a lot of Christians and conservatives who have felt maligned because of making a choice that David, I think, was not only the politically correct choice, I think it was the morally and ethically right choice.
1: You know, Ralph, you lay it all out in the book, and then you deliver the hammer at the end, where I counted it's nearly 30 pages of accomplishments yeah. of what this president has done. I mean, that that in itself, I thought, was a pretty, pretty compelling. I want to read you a quote that you say in the book. Uh, this was interesting. The only crime people of faith are guilty of is taking their citizenship seriously, that and asking not to be discriminated against because of their faith, and doing so, in so doing, they have exercised their citizenship in a manner that is entirely consistent with scripture. And I guess that goes yeah. to the point of the book for God and country. I mean, this—they have a moral obligation, is what you're saying?
0: Yeah, and I and I go through. Uh, look, I'm not a theologian, and I don't claim to be, uh, but I have been at the intersection of faith and civic engagement for decades. And I've thought a lot about this. I've written a lot about it. And I make, and I'm not the only one, by the way, there are people far smarter and far more theologically uh, educated than me. Uh, But uh, I believe that if you study the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a lot of biblical teaching that would suggest that we hold a dual citizenship. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, which is both here now and yet still to come, uh, we await its full realization. And that's our ultimate obligation. Mm -hmm. But as earthly citizens, we are also citizens of a country. And we have certain obligations and responsibilities attendant to that citizenship. And I go through historical examples of that. You know, we've been told, for example, that Uh, We shouldn't have turned to Donald Trump as a political savior to defend our First Amendment rights, to freedom of speech, to freedom of religion. These are rights, by the way, that are enshrined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which we believe are not ultimately given by men or presidents or congresses or parliaments or even the Supreme Court. We believe those rights come from God, Mm. and we believe we should defend those rights if necessary, with our very lives, okay yeah and and so they've said, well, you know, you, you should have suffered as a Christian, you should have just allowed your rights to be violated. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and let Hillary appoint members of the Supreme Court and have the hobby lobby case never happen, mm-hmm. and have the little sisters of the poor never protected and I go through the example of the apostle Paul and how he appealed to corrupt and morally bankrupt and venal Roman authorities to defend his right as a citizen of Rome, not to be put on trial in a kangaroo court in Jerusalem, he appealed all the way to Rome and he exercised the most precious right of a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar. And that Caesar, by the way, uh, was a uh, sexual deviant and a child molester and a bloodthirsty dictator tyrant, and murderer. That's who the Caesar was at that time. He's one of the most notorious rulers uh, that they ever had. But Paul didn't say, well, because he's not a Christian or because he's not a moral man, I shouldn't appeal to him. And my point is, I'm not saying Donald Trump is perfect because none of us is perfect. I'm not saying he's without sin because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all made mistakes. We're all sinners saved by grace. What Mm -hmm. I am saying is in a binary choice between him and a radical liberal agenda that threatened our rights as Americans, that Mm -hmm. we made the right choice for a man who promised to defend us, promised to be our champion, and he has kept those promises. Those promises were made, and they've been kept. We've been vindicated. He's been vindicated. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think Christians will vote for him in even larger numbers, David in 2020.
1: Ralph, you make a, a, such a compelling case in the book. One of the things that you bring up, I thought was very interesting, this idea of, a, of strange bedfellows, you know, Lyndon mm-hmm. Johnson, for example, working with African American Christians. I mean, you know, I, I think that part of the story hasn't really been told as much. This idea that, hey, look, you know, uh, when it came to Lyndon Johnson, not the most uh, moral guy in the world, and clearly fr- he had some racist uh, undertones, let's just call it for what it is, uh, right. and there he is being this uh, pioneer, if you will, or at least ushering in the civil rights movement to a degree. So so tell me a little bit about that and, and, and that
3: aspect to all of this.
0: Well, the point is, is that in politics and in civic engagement, you, you make allies and sometimes those allies are only for that moment, and you're not defending everything they've done in the past, Mm -hmm. and joining with them in an alliance to advance a moral good does not in any way associate you or make you responsible for other things that they may have done in the past that were contrary to your beliefs and your moral principles. And I'm in no way comparing... The civil rights movement of the 50s or 60s to our movement. And I'm not comparing Donald Trump to Lyndon Johnson. I'm just giving an example of a movement that came out of the churches that was fired by a moral fervor and ultimately found its foundation in natural law and the assertion of natural rights. And those mm-hmm. natural rights were inherent to their very humanity. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Martin Luther King, that meant the right to vote, that meant the right to not be discriminated against in public accommodations. And Johnson, who came to Congress initially in the 1930s and then went to the Senate in the 1940s, was a supporter of segregation. He was personally a racist. Uh, He, for decades, was mentored by Richard Russell, who was the head of the Southern Caucus in the Senate. He was not somebody who was an ally of the civil rights movement, but when he became president, he supported the Civil Rights Act. He gave a famous speech to Congress in which he said, we shall overcome. He's supporting Voting Rights Act, and they worked with him to do that. Now, if Donald Trump, in our time, is willing to appoint judges who will respect the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which means defending our First Amendment right to share our faith Mm -hmm. and to not be discriminated against by our own government, for example, in being forced to provide medical services to our employees that violate our faith and assault our conscience, if he's willing to do that, if he's willing to defend the sanctity of innocent human life, is he, if he's willing to recognize Jerusalem as the eternal capital of, of Israel, and he's willing to relocate our embassy to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. then why should we not work with him to advance those moral goods? And and David, the thing I reject in the book in the strongest of terms is the choice in 2016 and the choice in 2020 is not a choice between the lesser of two evils. When Donald Trump stands up for life, when he defends Israel, when he defends uh, the right of Christians and other believers to share their faith free from persecution and discrimination, those aren't lesser evils, those are moral goods. He's advancing intrinsically moral goods. And the other side is advancing what I believe to be intrinsic evils in an abortion on demand paid for with tax dollars uh, agenda. So again, I think on moral grounds, ethical grounds, we made the right choice. And all the people who said we couldn't trust him, he was a liar, he was a charlatan, those critics have been proven wrong. He kept his word.
1: You know, Ralph, you mentioned abortion, and you talk a lot about the life issue, obviously, in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. You make a very interesting point about how the media gives a lot of oxy- oxygen to hypocritical evangelicals, but they sure really should maybe look at a deeper point about the Democrat Party and what are evangelical Christians supposed to do on the life issue when this Democratic Party has has really uh, turned and done a 180 Uh, On the life issue. Uh, So I wonder if you can talk about that.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of criticism directed at us that the abortion issue and that the life issue is just a cudgel that we use as a weapon against the left. And that, you know, what we really like about Trump is that, you know, he's tough and he's mean and he takes on the media. And I go back and I look and I recount, you know, relatively briefly, it's about a half a chapter, how the Democratic Party went in a very short period of time from showing respect for, and at least allowing space for, the deeply held moral beliefs of Christians. Not just on the life issue, but on the marriage issue. Remember, in in 2008, when Barack Obama ran for president, he said that he believed marriage was a sacred union between a man and a woman, quote, as a Christian. He said, as a Christian, and this is a direct quote, God God is in the mix. Now, would a a Democrat say that today? Would Joe Biden say that as a Roman Catholic? Uh, The same on the abortion issue. They went from supporting the Hyde Amendment for decades. Believe me, I've been involved in this issue for many years. (laughs) And we've always had in the House probably 20 to 30 Democrats who were pro life, most devout Roman Catholics, some evangelicals. And they said, look, abortion may be legal, but you shouldn't take my tax dollars to promote it or perform it. And that was Joe Biden's position, David, for 42 years. For 42 years as a senator, as vice president, he supported that, even under the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. He got into this race for president last April and he folded like a cheap suit on an issue that he had held for four decades in 72 hours. And his position is now the position of Planned Parenthood, which is abortion is not only a constitutional right, but it should be subsidized with tax dollars and should and it should be included as a mandatory benefit
3: mm-hmm. in
0: government-run health care, including Medicaid and Medicare. That's his position. And then And then what do you expect pro-life Americans of faith to do? How can they participate in that? Where is the home for them? Where is the allowance made for their moral beliefs? So instead of pointing the finger at us and saying, how can you support a thrice married Manhattan billionaire who has a playboy past and was tabloid fodder for decades? Our response is, how can we join a coalition with you even if we wanted to? When, when you're for the taking of innocent human life paid for with our tax dollars on demand for any reason, for no reason, for sex selection in the ninth month of pregnancy, as the president said in the debate with Hillary Clinton, moments before they're born. If we really believe that that's the taking of innocent human life, where is your allowance for us? And I, make, I sort of put it back on them and, yeah. and, 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 and explain why we have felt forced to make the decisions we've made.
1: Ralph, you're uh, always called an influential evangelical leader, but you're so much more than that, uh, especially a historian. Uh, and you, you look at JFK and the bigotry that kind of he confronted at the time in the 60s as it relates to him being Catholic. And, and then you go on to talk about that there is a bigotry as well present uh, among, against evangelicals to this day, in this day and age. Can you explain a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's a, a sense in which uh, the vitriol and the venom that direct, is directed at Donald Trump is ultimately not because of his uh, checkered past or because he hasn't always been a conservative or a Republican. It, it isn't because of personal choices that he made earlier in his life.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It's ultimately because he fights for us and stands for us and advances our advances our principles Mm -hmm. and as he said so eloquently when he spoke at the march for life in very trumpian terms (laughs) it's his eloquence you know it's a queen's eloquence Mm -hmm. he said they're after me because i fight for you Mm -hmm. he said that when he was speaking to the march for life Mm -hmm. and i think what he's done is he's provided a platform david Mm
3: -hmm.
0: not just access but a platform for a constituency that there has been a systematic effort to marginalize, to sideline, and ultimately to silence. And you know the John F. Kennedy quote that I use in the book is if I lost the right to be president of the United States on the day that I was baptized, then not only am I the loser, but you're the loser. Mm. And the whole world is a loser. In the eyes of history, and in the eyes of the human race, and he couldn't have been more right. There were people who said, "Well, he shouldn't be president because he's a Roman Catholic. He might be beholden to the Pope." And I think, in a very different way, uh, a a not dissimilar kind of bigotry has curdled and formed against evangelicals, where you're not allowed to bring your views on marriage, life religious freedom, Israel and the family into the public square, because anything that is derivative of the Bible is ipso facto undemocratic. It shouldn't be part of the conversation. You're quote, trying to impose your religion on somebody else. Now, let me make just one quick point on that. Isn't it interesting that when evangelicals support things like criminal justice reform, which we did with President Trump, and comprehensive immigration reform, which we did not only under Bush, but under Trump. We've supported immigration reform. We believe in showing compassion for the sojourner and the stranger and the alien and the immigrant. By the way, we also support border security and the rule of law. But when we support those things, you ever notice they never attack us for that? They never say our faith shouldn't be part of a conversation. It's only when we advance some of the conservative things that we believe in that they object.
1: Ralph, I want to ask you about this. Uh, you say this in the book about the media because you take uh, quite an extensive, uh, or you have spent some time uh, talking about the media's role in all of this. And this is what you say when it comes to Trump. The media and the left twist the Trump evangelical alliance into a weapon with which they hope to bludgeon people of faith into shame and silence. It's something you pretty much were starting to get into there. But tell me about the media's role in all of this and what their ultimate goal here is. That sounds like it right there.
0: Yeah, I think think the ultimate goal is not just to depress the turnout of people of faith in 2020 and defeat Donald Trump. I think the ultimate goal, and if you look at some of the statements of the media and some of our critics, they say they are disqualified from every, ever speaking out on moral issues again because they got in bed with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear they're not just thinking about right now.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: They're saying that voice should be silenced, muffled, or ignored because they decided to join an alliance and a coalition with Donald Trump. And so I think, I think that it's very clear what the agenda is. It's the same agenda they've always had, which is to take the roughly 35% of the electorate that self identifies as conservatives of faith, predominantly either Roman Catholic or evangelical, although that's not all it is. But in the exit poll that we conducted in 2016, David, it was 35% of the electorate. They voted 86% for Donald Trump. They voted only 12% for Hillary Clinton. If the rapture took place tomorrow, and those voters disappeared, you'd be able to fit the Republican Party in a phone booth. Well, we, we don't really have phone booths anymore. So. <laughs> You're
1: dating yourself, Ralph.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm dating myself. I remember when there used to be pay phones. Let's, <laughs> let's put it this way. The big tent would become a pup tent. <laughs> the, re, the, the, the Republican Party wouldn't be able to win an election almost anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. The smart Republicans know that, and the smart Democrats know that. So, the objective here is to stigmatize, delegitimize, and marginalize people of faith. I tell you what, I believe, David. I believe that strategy is ultimately undemocratic and dangerous. And I'll tell you why. Because throughout American history, whether liberal or conservative, whether as Democrats and progressives, or whether as Republicans and conservatives, the brightest thread that runs through the tapestry, which is the American experience, the most indispensable voice in the conversation we call democracy has been the voice of faith and moral fervor. And whether it was the temperance movement or the suffragist movement or the anti-slavery movement, the civil rights movement, or in our own time, the pro-life movement, it has always come out of the pews and into the precincts And it has always called America to be true to the better angels of her nature and to become the shining city on the hill that she intended to be. Mm -hmm. And if you, look, you may not like our politics, but if you try to push us out, you try to make us ignored, you're robbing the most vibrant single voice in the whole conversation. Because in the end, it's not about power or who wins or who loses. These are about deeply held principles of right and wrong, and they ought to be listened to.
1: Ralph, you mentioned in the book so much uh, just a few last questions here, but you mentioned in the book about how there's a different side of Donald Trump that you know that many others mm-hmm. know, uh, and, and you know and i I can concur with that. It seems like he's you know typically we see the politician showing a softer side in public and kissing the baby trump's <laughs> trump's the exact opposite. What a shock that he's the law and order guy he's got a brand to protect, but in private. Uh, a much different uh, person. You, you have a lot of anecdotes and stories uh, in this book to, to kind of suggest that.
0: Yeah, I do. I, I talk about the very first time I talked to him. Uh, I was not a fan. I told him that. And he was not someone that I expected to like. Um, and I, I liked him instantly. Uh, he was very relatable, very personable. Uh, I think, as I say in the book, he can flatter with the best. You know, he can he can toggle back and forth between substantive issues and policy discussion Mm -hmm. and gossip and personalities. Um, I I think I say in the book, uh, you know, it's that cliche in politics. He's the kind of guy you'd want to have a beer with,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, even though he doesn't drink. He's a teetotaler. (laughs) Um, But I tell you what I learned, David, just to be serious for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say this as somebody who who never has been and is not now a sycophant. I'm a friend of the president's, but when I disagree with him, uh, I let him know that and I let the people around him know that. Uh, But I have come to have a great deal of affection for him because I have seen behind the scenes in his dealing with people. I saw it during the criminal justice debate. I saw people who had been locked away in prisons, the key thrown away. Um, forgotten, with no advocate, and you know, I saw the pardons that he issued, and the fact that he he really had compassion for these people, and he, you know, for the offending population, and he wanted to give them a second chance. I also know many stories, most of which, by the way, I do not tell in the book, and I can't mm-hmm. tell now, but I know situations and circumstances of people who've had either career setbacks or an illness or a death in their family, when the president reached out to that person on the phone and said, look, I'm president of the United States, anything you need, call me, here's my number, I wanna help you, You know, I'm thinking of you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're right, I wish that the American people could see that side of him the way I've been able to see it, mm-hmm. but you know, that's one of the natures of the media filter, unfortunately.
1: Ralph, two last questions. I can't let it pass with there's this part in the book. (laughs) You are on a cruise in France and Trump calls you. Basically, this idea that you would have been or were thinking about being a campaign manager for Donald Trump if he had run for president in 2012. Uh, It's a fascinating story. (laughs) Can you tell me about that? uh, You've got to say it. I'm not going to say it. You say it.
0: Well, I, w- I was uh, on a cruise with National Review on the Seine River, and we had gone up to Normandy, where my wife and I, you know, visited the cemetery there and went to the bluffs and looked over where uh, our soldiers landed mm. um, on June Fourth, nineteen forty-four, and uh, it was it was obviously a deeply moving experience. And as we worked our way down the Seine River back into Paris, we were in the outskirts of Paris, and my My cell phone went off and it was Donald Trump. And he said, "Uh, Ralph, the final episode of Celebrity Apprentice is going to air Sunday night. And Monday morning, I'm going to walk into a hotel ballroom in front of 2,000 reporters and I'm announcing I'm running for president. And he goes, and I want you to run the campaign. And I was, first of all, shocked. (laughs) And second of all, flattered that he would, you know, think that I was capable of doing that for him. But I had made a commitment to the board of directors of Faith and Freedom uh, two years earlier when I started Faith and Freedom, because, you know, I had left the Christian coalition uh, in 1997, and some of them were involved in that. And they said, look, you know, if we're <laughs> going to join the board of this thing and help raise money and help start this, you've got to agree this time, you're not going anywhere.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So I explained to him that You know, I had made this commitment and I didn't see how I could break it. And he didn't seem to be particularly dissuaded by that. (laughs) You know, well, we can we can figure it all out. So uh, anyway, long story short, uh, I flew back from Paris, um, coincidentally, on Sunday night and Monday morning at 9 a.m. I walked into his office and I took one look at him, Mm. and I knew he wasn't running. Mm. And he said, I owe you an apology. And I said, how's that? I said, you're not running, are you? And he goes, no, I'm not. And long story short, NBC had re-upped him for another season, offered him some untold sum of money. Uh, uh, he didn't get specific about what it was, uh, but he said it was a lot. And so, you know, that never happened. But the, the good news, I think either the coincidental, the serendipitous, or the, uh, the providential, maybe it was a divine appointment. It was as a result of that whole episode that he and I became friends mm-hmm. and we stayed in touch. I would meet with him when I was in New York. And, and so uh, I've always felt fortunate that I got to know him before he was a candidate, because as I say in the book, David, this is the real point. The real point is not the story. Right. The point is when there were a lot of other people who didn't feel like they could trust him, um, had serious reservations. I, I never really had those because I knew him. And even though I stayed neutral in the primaries, I'm not sure he or his campaign were overly thrilled with that. But even though I did do that, um, I never hesitated to tell anyone in public or in private that I had no reservations at all about his pro-life and pro-family and pro-religious freedom stances. And I, and I even go into the book about conversations I had with him and those issues I think his conversion was one of the heart, not just the head. Mm -hmm. I can't judge a man's heart, and it doesn't really ultimately matter to me as long as he keeps his word, whatever the reason is. But I became convinced that his movement in our direction was a change of heart.
3: Mm.
1: Ralph, the last question, it's a bit of a Dr. Phil question, but... Uh, how cathartic was it for you to write this book? Because you have taken hits, evangelical leaders have taken hits from the evangelical never Trumpers. Um, uh, not not that this was payback, that's not how you operate. But I, I am wondering about just from a cathartic standpoint, and, uh, you know, relationships have suffered, and there's been a fracture within the church. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering, this book seems to kind of set the record straight on a lot of that. I'm just wondering, personally, how was this for you in terms of writing this book?
0: Well, there, there probably were a few times when I got a little worked up, you know, and <laughs> as my, uh, as my uh, dissertation director when I was in my PhD program at Emory University, great guy by the name of Dan Carter, by the way, not a, not a conservative, but <laughs> okay. uh, a, a very fair-minded liberal and a great scholar. I learned a lot from him and my other professors there. <laughs> he told me something one time I never forgot. He said, Ralph, I'd rather have somebody turn in purple prose that I could tone down than prose that's just dead on the page. Right. So when I went back through and I edited it, I, I toned more of that down because I didn't want it. In the end, it's not personal. I can honestly say that I have many friends who are believers in Jesus Christ who strenuously disagree with those of us who have decided to support Donald Trump. It is, as I said, it's 86% Mm -hmm. of self-identified conservative Christians of faith. So they're clearly in the minority, a very distinct minority, I think a shrinking minority. But their their views should still be given their due. And I try to be fair-minded about it. And I should make clear that I've kept those friendships. Um, I've not allowed our disagreement to break and end friendships. I'm not going to lie; we don't communicate as much. (laughs) But um, but the real reason why I wrote the book was not that kind of catharsis. The real reason why I wrote it is what I said before. There have been a number of books written, number of op-eds written. Uh, There's been a lot of commentary attacking Christians for allegedly being hypocrites and spiritual frauds for having made this decision. I thought those charges were very unfair and and untrue. And I felt it was important as somebody who was there to tell the story of what really happened and how in fact most of them at the beginning not only voted for somebody else in the primary, two thirds of them supported someone else primarily people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and and Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum, but how reluctantly they ultimately signed on to Trump. You know, I tell a story in the book that we were probably 30 days from the convention, and there were major Christian and pro-life leaders who said they weren't convinced yet. So, So the charge that we sort of sold our souls is just belied by the true story of what We were faced with a very difficult decision and we prayed about it and we wrestled with it and we ultimately made a decision based on deeply held moral beliefs that derive from our faith that one candidate was making commitments to advance the moral good and the other candidate was advancing an agenda and committed to an agenda that we believed would advance intrinsically moral evil policies and it was based on that and they said at the time particularly on the court appointments you know he was the first candidate to ever release a list
3: yeah.
0: and say if you elect me president i'll choose one of these jurists he didn't say i'll choose somebody like them he said i'll choose one of them and they said you can't trust him he can't be believed he's a liar well they were proven wrong. We were proven right. He chose from that list. He kept his word. And when those judges that he nominated came under vicious personal attack, and I devote an entire chapter to the Kavanaugh nomination, as you know, he stood like a pillar with them. So I think we made the right we made the right decision. Ralph Reed, what a
1: great read! What a great book! Tell people where they can get it.
0: Uh, It's on Amazon and wherever books are sold, and uh, I urge people to get a copy. I think you'll not only have a tool that will help you in 2020, but I think it's a fun read.
1: Forgotten Country, The Christian Case for Donald Trump.
0: Ralph Reed, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You too, David. Thank you very much.
1: That is Ralph Reed on The Pod's Honest Truth. It was a great read. So many wonderful stories. Uh, Love chapter one (laughs) because I'm in it. Uh, But beyond that, uh, there were so many wonderful stories. By the way, I would like to read a book that is titled Ralph Reed's Stories That He Just Can't Tell You About. That would be a book for sure, because boy, has this guy been in the thick of it uh, with not just uh, Donald Trump, but go back to Reagan and Bush, and he's got stories to tell. Speaking about stories to tell, you know, I wrote a book called The Faith of Donald Trump. We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. I want to conclude with reading you just an excerpt, uh, if I could, from the book about why evangelicals support Trump. And here's the final conclusion that uh, I came to. Of course, my my co-author, Scott Lamb, we wrote this together, and here's what we said at the end of the book. Quote, it's no secret that white evangelical Christians, while still dominant politically, see the culture slipping away. They're not the majority they once were, and they've been looking for that fierce protector. And along came Donald Trump, warts and all, But while the mainstream media was focusing on past blemishes that they thought would derail Trump with evangelicals, what they missed was the cultural link they had with the past, a connection of worldviews that encompassed patriotism, respect for God and country, a disdain for political correctness, and a restoration of good old-fashioned Judeo-Christian values. The combination struck political gold for Trump and for evangelicals, but it was never fake. It was a solid union made possible by two willing participants, a mega billionaire who was yearning for the great America he remembered, and evangelicals hoping to rekindle the culture they once knew. And with those philosophical words, until next time on the Pod's Honest Truths.